Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Cooperative this Thursday morning. It's raining here in D.C. The farmers need rain to get their crops to grow, so we praise God for rain. And we have a farmer with us today, Mr. Ben Burkett out of Mississippi. Good morning, Ben. Yeah, good morning. Good morning, sir. How are you this morning? I'm doing very well. I understand that farmers get up at 5 o'clock and hit the field, so this is like afternoon for you, isn't it? It's uh, 5 o'clock every day, seven days a week. <laughs> okay. So how long you been farming? I had to sit and inside. I've been farming on my own for 43 years, but I've been involved in farming all my life. But I actually started farming uh, in 1973. My father financed my crop. In 74, I was on my own. Your father financed your crop? Right, that's the way you usually go. Say you want to start farming, and the first year your father, somebody in your family, go to the bank and sign for you to get the money you need. They do it one year. <laughs> so now my daughter's taking over, so I'm on, I'll start off one year, then you're on your own. So the, did you farm on your father's land, or you got your own land to farm on? I, I, do, I was farming on, on my father's land. But he, okay, he, so he he financed for my seeds and my fertilizer and my chemicals and labor and everything I needed for that year. <laughs> so you had to know how to budget so you could figure out, okay, if I'm going to farm an acre or five acres or whatever, I need this amount of money. Take that to right. the bank mm -hmm. and say, I need to borrow this kind of money, and then your father co-signs for you. Co-signed -so, co for you. Well, that's, that's the a next, great way of... In 1978, I, I got a USDA loan. Okay. Well, Which was, you know, discrimination because I had one of those loans that... Well, I had the type of loan that called it the lawsuit. The one, they called it supervisor account. I couldn't write my own checks. <laughs> well, they gave you a loan, but they wrote your checks? Right. If I wanted to buy... Thousand dollar worth of fertilizer. I had to go to the office. They had to sign the check, and I had to take it back to the to the uh, co-op store. <laughs> Supervisor well, of the county said. <laughs> well, that seems like okay. They don't trust you to be able to spend your own money. The hell of your you own business. <laughs> right on. And that that created a suit. Actually, you were able to the, sue the them? Black Farmer lawsuit. Pickford versus USDA in 1996. Class action lawsuit with black farmers. Yes, it did. It was thousands of farmers. The, the uh, research showed they was only doing black farmers like that. Okay. So this, this discrimination shows up in all kinds of different ways. 
Yes, it does. <laughs> so I always thought that that, we, that that suit was because they wouldn't let black farmers get the loan. But they would let you have the loan. loan. And even after you got the loan, it was still managed. Wow. That, that is terrible. But I want to go. I want to go all the way back to your father was a farmer, his and he father. had the land. Oh, his father was a farmer too. Right. Name, same name, Ben Burkett. Wow, you got a history. So, how far back? What year did your grandfather? Your grandfather? Yeah, your yeah. grandfather started. Uh, some the, my my on my mother's side. My mother's. Grandfather, which had been my great grandfather, got a homestead in 1889. 164 acres from the United States government. And 1889. Then, um, 1889. There were quite a few African American families in South Mississippi received land patent, they called the original deed from the United States government, give, given, basically giving that land to them because it, it was open up for settlement. In the eighties and nineties, so many eighteen eighties and eighteen nineties. Okay, eighteen eighties and eighteen nineties. I seen the lad. I seen one as late as eighteen ninety six. The Danzler family they they got a homestead. So it was a at one time in this community, African Americans had three thousand acres. How many do they have now? I would say about about maybe half of that. Okay. Not, not quite 2,000. A lot of it was okay, lost so 18... discrimination. Some of it was sold. Some left and went to Chicago and just left the land. All right, so in 1889, where was that in relationship to the Civil War? I seen some as early as 18, 1882, so about 20, 25 years after the Civil War. So... They were fortunate enough to have someone that could read and write to do the documentation. The file of the necessary paperwork in Jackson and in Washington, D.C. I haven't been able to really research to see who that was, but somebody had to know how to read and write to, you know, continue to do the legal process. And I have the original, in my family, I have the original document itself on parchment paper. <laughs> You had the original deed that eight to go back to eighteen eighty nine, which gave your family right, the hundred and eighty nine right, acres. The, right, I got the original document right here in this house. It's, uh, wow, that's a, that's a real interesting history. So some black folks did get their forty acres in a mule. Y'all got yes, one hundred sixty four. That's what I always say. <laughs> oh, I right. didn't know that. I, I I just thought it was a it was an idle promise, but it was through the homestead. Through the home, yes, sir. And so I was you're... in a co-op training several years ago, and it showed it families that had that type of asset that early was able to build wealth, live quicker than other other African families, and 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 that is in my case that is true. So the farm went from one hundred sixty four now is three hundred twenty acres. Every generation added some acreage. 
so with with getting ownership of land and then your family passed it down you all stayed on the farm you didn't sell the farm you passed it on and then so generation after generation could build some wealth where most black families don't build wealth matter of fact they may have a negative wealth and I contribute directly to the land and good management of you know taking care of the resources that you have and that's my generation, well, the generation even before me was able to went to college off of that land, from basically from cotton production, growing that was the money crop up into the eighties. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You went to you, you went to college? You don't have to be a farmer to be a farmer. You don't have to go to college, do you? I just thought you got out there and got behind your horse and plowed. I don't you, think so. Wh- <laughs> <laughs> I attended Alcorn State University in 1969 and 72 when I graduated. I was so, going to leave the state of Mississippi and go to Chicago like everybody else. But my father got sick in 1973. So my mother had to come help with that crop. And I've been here ever since. <laughs> so, so, so what did you major in in Alcorn State? Agricultural. <laughs> yeah, I got a uh, agricultural with an emphasis on uh, economics. It was a good experience. I, I was able to go all four years. <clears throat> well, what happened in 1968, they integrated the livestock show. So me and another uh, African-American boy at the time, we were the first two to show in the Integrated livestock show, and I had a a, a purebred Angus heifer that I sold in that show for sixteen hundred dollars, and then it cost for four hundred dollars or some else to go to Alcorn and mm. stay on campus. So I had about two years of better when I went off of the farm. <laughs> well, when I went to when I went to Bluefield State College in nineteen. 19- 66, it was $550 a semester, so we're about in the same world. Yeah. Yeah, I just want to say it's been a, a real good experience, you know, being on the farm and being involved in the cooperative movement. And I just count up sometimes how many cooperatives I belong to here. You know, the liquid cooperative, the water cooperative, the livestock sale cooperative, the production, the marketing cooperative. So, the credit union. <laughs> I'm at least our water association does a cooperative, rural water association. What about uh, where you uh, you got marketing? What about a purchasing co-op? Where you do you buy your grain and everything through a purchasing co-op? We buy our seed and fertilizer. We know had a, a marketing co-op for the grain. It all, they always been the big companies, Cargill or. Archer Dale Midland or Continental Grain. We never had a. Uh, it's some in other parts of Mississippi, but we never had one in South Mississippi. I'm in South Mississippi, down close to New Orleans Mobile. We had a Telma Cooperative one time, but it disbanded. United Woodcutters. All farmer life at one time or another. You know, we, you know, many of the big companies like Sun Kiss and Land Lakes, all of those are cooperative, which we. You know, meet with every now and then. We still support one another. 
So what I get is that you, I just counted five co-ops, electric, water, livestock, marketing, credit union, and you used to be in a timber co-op. So that's five co-ops that you belong to, and then you also do work with other co-ops like Sunkist and Lando Lakes. Mm-hmm. So there's the sixth the principle of cooperation among co-ops. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely right. So why uh, yeah, is man, co-ops I, I, I so important? I'm going to just say my, my in the Spring Farm Association is a marketing person, a cooperative. It's over 40 years old, and it got started in 1978 because of discrimination. There used to be buyers coming in this area that would buy produce from small farmers, like the watermelon, the peppers, and the cucumbers, and everything. Well, somehow or another, the black farmers found out that they were paying the white farmer one price and black farmers another price. So what they decided to do, the eight original members said, well, the best thing for us to do is see, can we just take our produce straight to Chicago ourselves? So they put their money together and bought a, a 22, 24-foot tandem refrigerated truck. And hmm. the co-op started off with eight members. Well, it went up as high as 56 members. Now we got 34 members. So that's how, that's how it got started. So the the buyers were paying the black farmers a, a less, perhaps a lot less than they paid the white farmer for the same watermelon. Right. Same watermelon, same peas, same you know. <laughs> Well, they decided to say, well, we just start hauling our own. So you, by yourself, as a farmer, could not afford to ship your products to Chicago. But as as if eight buyer, if eight farmers came together, you could afford to buy the truck. And you'd have enough to fill that truck, truck and take it up. No- <laughs> okay. Right. Mr. Burkett, we're going to take our first break here. Um, this is very, okay. very interesting. Four or five generations of farmers. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. Your news talk station. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. We have Mr. Ben Burkett as our uh, guest today. He's out of Patel, Mississippi, which is close to the Louisiana border. He's South Mississippi. He's a farmer, been a farmer all of his life. His grandfather was a farmer. His great-grandfather on his mother's side, they've been farming since 1889. That's 24 years after the end of the Civil War. They got a... uh, 164 acres uh, homestead, which has helped his family to build wealth throughout the years, generation from generation. And Ben, why that's so important to me is that the average white family in the U.S. today has a net worth of $171,000, and the average black family has a net worth of $17,000. And uh, to be a farmer in your community in the Mississippi, never thought about this because I always thought that the folks in the South were black folks were in really bad shape. But those ones that were able to get land have been able to increase their net worth. 
So that I would imagine the 320 acres in your family is worth a whole lot more than $17,000 plus the equipment you all have, whatever money you've been able to save, whatever other things you've been investing in, whatever equipment you have. So your net worth is a whole lot more than 17000 That's the average of black families. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. I, I would agree with you. Every price of land here is, is uh, farmland is $5,100 acre. So if you do the math, you see how much the land worth itself. <laughs> but it's, well, doing the math, it's uh, taking it by $5,000, that's $1.6 million. Just the land by itself. All right. And um, the other thing that I found interesting that you said that I really want to get get to young people out there, you said it's not only owning the land or being inherited this this land from your father who inherited from his grandfather and on your mother's side, your great-grandfather, but you had to learn how to manage it. You, so you needed good management and you needed an education so you know how to manage them. And you got went to Alcon State for four years, graduated with an agriculture and economics degree. So the economics was how do you how do you manage money? What what do you take care of that? And agriculture was how do you farm and know how to farm and know how to plant and when to plant and what to do and how to make sure the rabbits don't eat your stuff and whatever ever stuff that come and try to take over your your deals and the turkeys and all my deals everything. And so how do you, you have to be up? able to adapt, you know, because I started off at growing cotton. The university taught me I'd go back home and, and just grow one crop cotton and make a good living. That lasted for three or four years, and the cotton market went bad, and we grew soybeans, grew wheat, and grew corn. But we always grew vegetables. We always had a market. Uh, we had a contract with Vlasic for pickles up in the 19. 95 went up, they signed NAFTA. That's when we lost that contract. But we grew pickles on the contract. We had a contract with Tabasco for long red cayenne. I'm planting 2,000 of them Monday morning. Peppers, the kind that made the t- Tabasco sauce out of. We had contracts for uh, peas and butter beans. We don't have none of that now. I contributed to NAFTA, but I might be wrong. Mm-hmm. So now we have to rely totally on the fresh market, like the restaurants and the uh, stores. And with the restaurants closed in New Orleans Mobile because of the virus, we in limbo now. We got a crop almost ready to harvest in two and a half weeks, and we really don't know where it's going to go. So that's some of the things you have to contemplate in farming, you know. Even with the best of plans, two factors always come in play, and that's weather in the marketplace because it fluctuates. So in the last 10 years, I would say, as a farmer, you have to really deal with that. So I want to talk about two things now. I'm going to talk about the co-op. You you belong to five. You, you belong to several others, and then you work even with others. So I would imagine the whole time, your whole life you've been in farming, you've been in co-ops. Is that a true statement? I was. Ever since I was 25, so that's something I've been okay. almost, well over, right at 50 years almost. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. So, and my co-op, co-op. Frame Pharmacist, became a member of the Federation Southern Cooperative in 1981. Okay, let's talk about these co-ops. What is Spring Farmers Co-op? That's a marketing and production cooperative. Uh, 
Like I said, we got 34 members now. And we are... You go there to well, you go to the crop and purchase your input, your seed, fertilizer, and chemicals. Then when you make your crop, you bring it back there in the, the uh, co-op marketing for you. Then as a farmer, I got to get it to the co-op warehouse, and the co-op responsibility is to find uh, a market for it. And we have sold produce as far as we to Canada. So we, Chicago, Boston, living in New York. And the last five years, been more New Orleans, Memphis, Mobile, local, regional, I would say. Mm-hmm. And so the co-op have refrigerated trucks, cold storage, packaging. We can even value it. We can, we can process it. We can shell the peas and put them in one-pound bag. We cut the squash and cucumbers up in five-pound bag, mostly for food service. And the food service is they down over 50%. So this virus is really... We're depending on the government to bail us farmers out, too, at the same like they did everybody else. So this round, a farmer can actually apply for this for the covert relief through their, through their local bank. But many of our farmers don't keep adequate documentation. So we're going to have to work with those farms to make sure they get their application in in the next week or so, which we are doing now. So the cooperative got a place, you know, in this community. Okay, so there are four types of co-ops. You got to, if the co-op is owned and controlled by the employees, it's called a worker co-op. If the, the, if, if the uh, co-op is owned and controlled by the people that uses the product or service, it's called a consumer co-op. And the consumer co-ops that you talked about are your electric co-op, your water co-op. Those are consumer co-ops. And then if the, well, the other one's the credit union. Then if the co-op is, like a farmer's use a lot is a purchasing co-op where you buy in your the seed and fertilizer and sometimes equipment. Uh, it's called a purchasing co-op. And then if it if it's a marketing co-op, then it it takes right. the products like you said, Indian Springs Cooperative does, and it will add value to it by packaging it, storing it, transporting it. You take it to the co-op. You're responsible for the transportation to get it to the co-op. And then the co-op is responsible for transporting it to whatever market, whether that's south in New Orleans or north to Chicago. So that's how the co-ops function, where you as an individual farmer couldn't get it to all of these different markets. And you are a member of five co-ops. I wouldn't have the volume to load an 18-wheeler. Most of the time, we we have to have three or four farmers to come up with that amount of product. So that's how the co-ops work, and we're going to take our second break here and come back and I want to talk about when you say we help the farmers with the finance getting this financial stuff who's that we I assume that's the Federation of Southern Co-ops so I'd like for you to talk about that umbrella organization and we'll be right back Talk Station. Welcome back.
Welcome back, everybody. The program is Everything Cooperative. I'm Vernon Oaks, the host of the show. We have Mr. Ben Burkett on the line with us from Mississippi, who's a farmer, fourth-generation farmer. His daughter's in farming, and that's a fifth generation. The National Co-op Bank sponsors this program. NCB's mission is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities, by providing innovative financial and related services. The National Cooperative Bank is the only bank dedicated to delivering nationwide banking products and solutions to cooperatives and member-owned organizations to help communities thrive, to help communities thrive. So that's one of the things NCB does, uh, Ben, and we were talking about the Federation of Southern Co-ops right before the break. So the Indian Springs Cooperative became a member of the Federation of Southern Co-ops so let me just shout out to Cornelius Blandy and the folks at Federation of Southern Co-ops. And I had the absolute pleasure of meeting uh, Ralph Page and interviewed him a couple times. Matter of fact, the first Thanksgiving that we had uh, five and a half years ago, he came on the show Thanksgiving morning. He said his wife allowed him to come on the show first before they ate dinner <laughs> that evening. So he's just a great human being. I was glad to meet him before he, yes, he passed he on. Yes, he was. He helped a lot of people, including in the Spring Farm Association, when we were getting ready to build our current warehouse. So, 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 what was the reason for forming Federation of Southern Co-ops, and why did Indian Springs join them? See, the reason of forming the Federation was so that all us grassroots cooperatives could basically speak as one voice. And we have membership from Texas to South Carolina. We have some members in virtually every southern state. So we are organized into the Federation Southern Cooperative. Then you have the state association. Like here we had the Mississippi Association Cooperative, the Alabama State Association, Texas Association, uh, Georgia State Association. So here in Mississippi we have 22 cooperative members, members of the Federation here in the state of Mississippi. And the Federation maintained an office in Jackson, Mississippi, and a nine-person staff scattered all over the state that helped farmers and credit unions. And when I say we, I'm a part of that staff. So in the last four weeks, we've been taking surveys and of our membership. Uh, what's the impact of this virus on our cooperative? Cooperative have physical places, adding it, the impact on individual farmers. So we'll get all that, compile all that information. Tomorrow is our deadline to get it all to our Atlanta office, and then Mr. Bland and his staff will seek whatever support out there for us as uh, small farmers. You know, farming is a 24-hour-a-day job. If you're really farming, you really don't have the time. And I'm, I'm speaking about myself. Because of this way it is now, everything is on the computer. <laughs> they, they got conference calls, they got Zoom, they got FaceTime. And where I'm at, we don't have fast-speed internet. So if we want to be on Zoom, it usually don't work because mm -hmm. our internet is so slow and it caught, draws down so much energy when you're on the net. So we usually have to be on the computer and the phone to be on a, on a call. And then we rely on our the staff of the Federation to keep us informed of how we can apply for the, the relief and help us step-by-step step on filling out those documents. 
the staff person signed to us out in this area must have Mr. Bonds is, is out today going from farm to farm with his laptop. And sometimes he have to write it on paper, then he go back over in the in the town of Hattiesburg where they got the uh, fast internet, then he uploaded. But the school put some temporary I don't know what they parked the bus out here at the church and that church supposed to send out internet over this community. But it ain't working too well. So that's one of the major problems, you know, that technology. But even I'm fairly good on the computer, but most of our farmers don't have never touched a computer in their life. That's where we come in, that type of system that we're getting from the Federation and State Association and many other, you know, groups that out trying to help African-American farmers, small farmers, you know, because the USDA office is closed. So I had to turn in some some documents on my call share. I went to the office. The office closed, but I had to make appointment at a certain time, and one of the staff from USD would be there, meet me outside in the parking lot, pick up the paperwork. So this is it's for real. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we got to cope with it. We got to learn how to adapt and continue on and all to stay in the, in the, in the business. So what what I'm hearing you say is that the individual farmer, particularly smaller farmer, but maybe all farmers, if you're an individual farmer, you don't have the bandwidth, you don't have the resources to do everything you need. You've got to buy stuff, you've got to plant it and harvest it or grow stuff, and then you've got to sell right. it. you got this whole process. It's a 24-hour, right. seven-day-a-week job, and you can't do it all. Right. So you create these businesses that, that help you to buy stuff, and Indian Springs does that for you. And then you had right. create a business to help you to sell stuff. That that gets part of that off your off your back to do. You have staff to right. help you do that. So you create co-ops. Working together as groups of farmers, you, you create a co-op to help you get done so you can survive and minimize your risk. You already got the risk of the weather and the market. And so to get yeah. rid of some of the risk of production and selling, promoting, you create these co-ops. Then Indian Springs joins the Federation, which is an umbrella of co-ops that are state by state. So you've got, you got 34 co-ops in Indian Springs and 22 co-ops in Mississippi that belong to the Federation. Right. So then the Federation has a bigger voice. They have staff that goes out and helps to pull information to give you information and then get information from you to take to the federal government or wherever they have to do to advocate for you to get your get your loans or get equipment or get knowledge. And I know the Federation has training because I've been to a couple of your annual meetings uh, in Birmingham and Epps, Alabama. So you get you work right. together as a group that gives you data that gives you power as a, as a group. Uh, you pass information back and forth. And from what I gather in been those conferences, you, you you get friends, you get you get community, you right? Get, yeah, okay. Yeah, I got farmers in Georgia. We talk at least two or three times a week. I got one in Texas that that I have met through the Federation annual meeting in August, and I can I can gauge the market by talking with them in Georgia and Florida because they crops are two to two weeks earlier than than our crops. So I can, if I know what's going on over there, I know how to market on this end. What's the price range? 
I stayed in contact. Yeah, I flew the right, brother. I was being members like that, meeting people from Carolinas and Missouri. It's just a wonderful relationship, and we learn how to network and work it together. We have a we have loaded the truck here with produce, and the farmers in Kentucky would call that they had ten thousand pounds of cabbages. And when we get to Marion, Illinois, they would meet us there and put their cabbage on our truck. Then we going on into Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's really working together. And, that, and really that's one of our white co-op members, too, in the, in the Ozark Mountains. You know, we have white co-op members, Native American, Hispanic. And one thing about the Federation, we, we have, a, a, you know, cotton farmer, rice farmer, vegetable farmer, cattle farmer, tobacco farmer. The Federation is, a, is diverse, and sometimes we have some real, real discussions. I know when the tobacco settlement came along, and many of the Federation farmers were tobacco farmers, so we had a big discussion on what we're going to support it, not support it. So some of the, you know, that was some of the best crops you could grow at the time for its income for a small farmer. So I remember that well from the meeting. It got it very heated. <laughs> I get that, and here's but here's what I'm hearing you say, sir. I mean, one of the reasons I like this co-op motto. And I learned about it through housing co-ops with another form of a consumer co-op. But it's it's the first one was that I really like was this fifth principle of education that you end up training each other and giving each information. Like I said, federation gets information from you and then gives information to you. And there's always this training going on. And then the other one, which you just talked about, is volunteer and open membership. It doesn't make any difference uh, what your gender is, what your social background, your political, your racial, religious. There's none of those kinds of things that we've seen in America. That discrimination doesn't happen in co-op. If it's a true co-op and operating as a co-op, as the Federation does and Indian Springs does, it'll take white members, black members. The focus has been on smaller black farmers because of the discrimination both in the U.S. government and discrimination with the buyers in the U.S., just being black in America. But it doesn't, what I have found out growing up in West Virginia, Ben, I assume you've found this out too, poverty does not discriminate. You don't care if you're white, black, pink, green, or orange. It just doesn't discriminate. It messes up you just the same. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And in this part of Mississippi, where I'm at, there's no big, big farm. So we were forced to work together, black farmers and white farmers. Three of my neighbors are, are, are white farmers on three sides of my property. And they the third and fourth generation like I am, too. But we always got to work together in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. My neighbor got a piece of equipment. I need to borrow. I don't even have to tell him. <laughs> I just go hook up here, come use it, and come back. Then I tell him I got it. I bought it today, and I bought it back. And in and, and spring, I forgot to mention to the eight original members, they was it was a white farmer in the eight original. And we have six members now, so we always have been, you know. But that need, that well, you said the word, when you're poor, uh, trying to make it, you go, you tend to work together regardless. <laughs> Have to. Have to. So, 
the other couple of things about the principles, you have to have autonomy and independence. You have to own and control it. And you, it's one member, one vote. Doesn't make any difference how much right. wealth you have or what color you are. Any of that is one member, one vote. One vote. And when my local court, we set up as a, you have to buy one share of stock worth two hundred dollars, become a member, that care vote. But you can buy some of our members got five or six share, but one share care vote. <laughs> okay. So one member, one. We, vote. we learn how to uh, work together. It, it works in, in places, and it's not unique to here. It's all over the South, you know. And it's more cooperative being formed. I had a gentleman call call me a few days ago about they want to start a back of buying co-op in Biloxi, Mississippi. <laughs> they they seeing now that they need to be able to purchase their food in bulk and distribute it. Out in there. We got we to take our final break. I'm sorry. I was trying to get you to get that in there. We'll be right back because I want to get to coronavirus. We'll be right back. Don't touch that down. Your news talk station. back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. Mr. Ben Burkett, uh, who's a farmer in Mississippi, he also uh, works with the Federation of Southern Co-ops to help other farmers. Ben, we've talked about um, to be a farmer, there's a lot of risk, whether predatory, whether a rabbit or deer or anything else. Then you have the risk of price, the what you buy stuff from and what you sell stuff to and how you get it to markets and then you have to be able to adapt no matter, there's all kinds of reasons to adapt. At one point you had cotton, then you had to go to soybean cotton market goes out so you have all of these different risks and the risk right now is coronavirus so what 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 are you finding out I guess through your work with the Federation both as a farmer what is this coronavirus did? You said that the markets are not there. The Louisiana uh, restaurant markets have gone down maybe 50%. So what are the kinds of things that the co-ops, uh, Indian Springs Federation, other co-ops are doing to overcome this coronavirus? This, uh, this is started, it started real bad in the city of New Orleans, which is one of our major markets in there. Uh, we had six restaurants three stores and four farmers markets all closed. So we uh, technically lost most of our markets. But it, it happened at a fairly good time because we was in between crops. I was leafy green was season was over with and I was spraying vegetables, squash, cucumbers and uh okra and they were not quite ready, but they will be ready in a couple of weeks three weeks at the most. And we started talking with buyers, but nobody is buying. So one big thing is the impact on the marketplace. We we have dec- decreased market for what we produce. And the other one is like when you have a co-op facility, your cost of doing business continue without any sale. You know, the light bill, water bill, insurance, upkeep, uh, all that study got to be paid, but you're not selling anything. 
So that's putting a, a hardship on on the cooperative itself. Labor things you can kind of you know lay lay people off, but you don't want to, but you don't have no other choice, or you can't pay them. So that's another layer. And then navigating the system of how to apply to receive the relief is another. You know that's what we need a system again, because we like I start stated to everything is is being done on the computer. You know we'll go to the office, sit down with individuals, fill out the paperwork. So, and many of our farmers, and I could, and I put myself in that category. It's got it's just not uh, that good on the computer. So we have to rely upon, in my case, on my daughter and granddaughter, and and staff person from the Federation to come around and help us fill out the necessary paperwork, upload it in the computer where we can get it in on time. I know I'm working with Bank Course out here in Mississippi to get my documentation in. It's been a tedious process. And then we have to work, make sure that on the other end, we're trying to become a distributor using, since we have the co op warehouse, we don't have nothing in there where we can, if people want to donate food out of, since we have the storage capacity, we want to be a part of that. So we can, uh, if somebody want to donate us some potatoes or whatever, we've got a place to store it, repack it, and get it out to the the people that need it, which we are doing a little of that now. We have some products at the co-op now. So that's some of the situation we're in. And definitely in the future, for the rest of the year, the planter don't play. Well, as usual, in most cases, you ha- you you gonna have to plant, raise some animals, cause you got to have some income to pay your bills. So mm-hmm. it's really not a that's not a, a big decision to make. That you're gonna try to have some market for it, but you you just about got to continue to to produce. I listened to NPR earlier this morning about the hog farmers, just the processing places. They're not processing, but the hogs are ready to be processed. So now they finish this kill some hogs. This one farm, so he have 320 head every week that need to go to the slaughterhouse. He two weeks behind. So if it's going to get them come by Monday Tuesday, it's going to euthanize the word they use. Well, that's yep. the situation a farmer in, you know. You just can't, you have to look at the options and continue. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's for real, the situation we're in. So I got for the farmer... The difficulty is that you, your stores, your you just named six restaurants, three stores, and four farmers markets. They all closed down, so their markets closed. You've got stuff coming up; it's got to be harvested. You got to figure out what to do with that. Your bills, both your particular bills as a farmer and Indian Springs bills, go up. Indian Springs has a facility that they use to refrigerate and process the the. Uh, the material that you all sent right. to them, and the, all of those costs continue. You don't want to lay people off, but you may have to. Right. And then you've got to, if the government is going to give out bailout money, you've got to be able to, to apply for, do the paperwork, and that's the accounting, your profit and loss balance sheet, and all of that stuff, and how many employees you had, and Absolutely. what was your right. your employee payroll, and all. you have to get all of that information, and that means that somebody's got to do that work. And the Federation, Indian Springs is working with the farmers in Mississippi, the Mississippi Office of um, 
uh, the Federation is working, and then the Federation is working. And then you have your daughter and granddaughter helping you with the computer. <laughs> okay. Right. She's five years old. Your granddaughter is five. Five. Oh, I don't know how to turn it on. And <laughs> what is this? <laughs> All right. So you start her off very early on in the business. She's got to learn this business and start right. them off very early on. And I told you the story when I was in the field getting some weeds out the, out the field. She's five years old. Her mom had bought a, a tar. I thought it was a toy garden hoe, but it was a real garden hoe. So we got through walking out the field. I said, let me pay you. I paid her $5. And we walked a little further. He looked at me and said, let me pay you. She gave me a quarter. <laughs> My girl, she's a business person. Okay. Okay. <laughs> she got $5 and gave you a quarter, and she has a real tool. She has a piece of equipment. She can go out and help you weed a garden hoe. It was okay. a real. It was, I thought it was a toy. <laughs> but it was a real child garden hoe. Made out of metal just like a real. <laughs> I thought I'd come in there and told my niece. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's, it's uh, we try to teach in the Federation three things. Hold on to your land. Work together. And always look to the future and, and on advocates. You can always change things if you can get enough voices together. Like we try to change the law here in Mississippi as it relates to our property. And we try to work on the federal level to change some of the policies that, you know, like here in Mississippi, you can't, you can't get a charter to, uh, have a housing cooperative. So we're trying to wait the state, state legislature to change the cooperative law. Here in the state of Mississippi, you can get all type charter for agriculture cooperatives. You, it, it's no way you can get a. You want to start a housing cooperative owned by the people that stay in the house. So we're working on both of those for the next couple of years to change the law. All right, we don't, we only have so, a few minutes left. I'd like to get this question to you before we go off, and that is. What do you see the role of the cooperative um, after the pandemic? I mean, we, we, we get through it. We work through it. We, we work together, as you said. We, you hold on to the land. You work together, and you, you look toward the future. So looking toward the future, what, what do you see the role of co-ops mm-hmm. after pandemic? I think cooperative is being reevaluated by everybody, from the healthcare industry to the workers. On cooperative, this is a golden opportunity to see how cooperative can be a major player in, in every society, area of society. Was health care, was food, was transportation. Uh, There's just so much that we can do together. And I think, like the gentleman I say, called from Biloxi, they were looking at how they can co-op them and, and look to better serving their community as a food co-op. So I think since this pandemic and many people have been quarantined, such as myself, we have time to reevaluate that a lot of things we thought we need, we don't need. A lot of things that we can do together. I look at the, the I'm looking at somewhere on on the television where the people were just, they couldn't go outside, so everybody would just come out on their balcony and just saying to each other and everything. So that's, that's cooperation there. 
So Sir, we got we, we to gotta, we gotta quit with that one. To bring about a change. All right, let's bring about a change and work together as a cooperative and look toward the future. Ben Burkett, thank you so very much. Everybody out there, have a wonderful week and live cooperatively. Your news talk station.